Uh, let me invite you now to open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Today the text that we will read will be Philippians 3, 12 to 16. And before I read the text, it's always appropriate to give thanks to God that he has given us this Bible, uh, the revelation of who he is and who we are and what life is about in the world and then what life is about for eternity. And it is a wonderful treasure to have because it points us to the ultimate treasure we have which is our Lord Jesus. Hear now the word of the Lord as I read from Philippians chapter 3 and verse 12. Apostle Paul speaking, Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we do pray that out of your goodness and grace you would speak to us today, that the Holy Spirit who breathed out this word would open our eyes and soften our hearts, generate in us a desire to hear from you and to respond to you. And we pray that you would speak to us because we are your servants and we long to hear you speak to our hearts. And so, Lord, we depend upon your spirit to enable both the one who preaches and the one who hears to do so in a way that will be fruitful and that will abound to your glory. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. This is a New Year's type sermon. It's not a resolution. And since I wasn't here last week, you're getting it this week. And the title of the message is A Worthy Ambition. What is a worthy ambition for us as we uh, have entered into 2020? And the worthy ambition, I think, is exactly the same one the apostle had. Jesus Christ meant everything to the apostle Paul. He meant everything to him. Paul, in this same epistle, says, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is is gain. Everything about Paul could be summed up in his passion and love for the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, at the same time, even though he knew the Lord, even though he was probably far exceeding any of us in knowing him and walking with him, he had a hunger and passion for Jesus that is unmistakable. It is clear in his life. And so what I want this sermon to do for you and for me is to renew us. And to renew something means to breathe new life into it. And to get away uh, from all the clutter 
I have a garage at home that's begging me to clean it out. It's begging me. Every time I open it, something falls and hits me in the head. And I think I lose a couple of IQ points. And by the way, what falls and hits me in the head is none of my stuff. <laughs> it's my children's stuff. No, it's stuff. And it's stuff we can't let go of. And sometimes our lives get cluttered. And we go through the holidays and it's sort of just, we're sort of... Uh, walking mindlessly along. And what I wanted to do today is to help you and myself experience spiritual renewal as we, as we look at this great text of the Apostle who makes some rather uh, amazing statements in this passage. And so I hope you will follow as we talk about that. Uh, he has explained in detail what it means for him to say to live as Christ. That knowing Christ as the risen Lord, empowering him, sharing in the fellowship of his sufferings, he was progressively conformed to him, anticipating the consummation of that fellowship in the resurrection. And so Paul is no doubt a driven person. He's very motivated toward the one thing. And Martin Luther said this, I think it fits with Paul's thought. He said, this life, therefore, is not righteousness, but growth in righteousness. Not health, but healing. Not being, but becoming. Not rest, but exercise. We are not yet what we shall be, but we're growing toward it. The process is not yet finished, but it's going on. This is not the end, but it is the road. All does not gleam in glory yet, but all is being purified. And so the Christian life is a process. It is a marathon. It is a long, winding road and race. And so the Apostle Paul speaks of the Christian life as a process. Now you have to understand, why is he bringing this up to this little church in Philippi? Because Paul had, in every city he went, opponents. People who dogged his steps, who were constantly trying to uh, destroy him and his gospel. And these opponents were known as Judaizers. They believed this. They believed that you could reach perfection in human life. And the way that you could reach perfection in human life is getting Jesus, yeah, that's a good start. But what you need to do is submit yourself to the Judaic law and obey it, and the Torah will deliver you from sin and present you perfect. And so there were the teleos, or uh, the, the ones who were perfect, so they assumed, in Philippi, and Paul is writing this to destroy that notion, to disabuse them of that notion, as it were. And so here's what he, what he does. He, he, they taught a doctrine of obtainable prefer, perfection based upon Jewish practices. And this was nothing more than self-righteousness. So there are three characteristics that Paul gives us here of a worthy ambition. And the first one is a realistic disclaimer. Notice Paul's words in verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. Paul 
was, had a healthy distrust of his own heart. Paul uh, was realized that he had been taken hold of, he had grasped, been grasped by Christ, but it lay, led him to a healthy realism about himself. He had a healthy uh, distrust. He did not trust his own heart. Paul did not, was not morbidly introspective. He didn't contemplate his evil, but he had two advantages over his opponents. He knew his own heart, and he had a strong concept of grace. Struggle and progress apparently don't exclude, but include each other. The Christian life is a struggle, and the progress happens amid the struggle, and apparently struggle does not lead to stagnation, but to steady process. The question then arises, how are we to conceive of this progress in this constant struggle we are engaged in? And we look in four directions, and this has to do with Paul. Only in the brokenness of the conflict does the believer really get to know himself in his oppositions against God. Let me say it this way. I know I'm a far greater sinner right now than I ever knew when I first met Jesus Christ. I know that there is in my flesh a hostile almost rage against God. I know that apart from the Spirit of God left to myself, there is nothing I wouldn't do. I know that. I know that I cannot trust myself. I know there's certain places I can't be. My dad always told me growing up as a kid, he says, you know, bad stuff always happens to you, son, where you're, when you're somewhere you're not supposed to be. And you know what? I found that hard to argue with. I hated it, but I found it hard to argue with. But let me tell you something. Don't trust your own heart. We don't live in Disneyland, okay? We don't. We live in reality. And our hearts are deceptive and desperately sick apart from the renewing grace of Jesus Christ. And so realistically, Paul had a very healthy distrust of himself. A very healthy distrust of himself. He knew that there was in his flesh an opposition against God. And so long as that opposition remains unchallenged, it may seem to lie dormant and can easily be underestimated. The struggle is thus advancing in self-knowledge. We know who we are better by knowing him. We know what we are and what our needs are. Consequently, the struggle also implies progress in living from forgiveness. The better we get to know ourselves, the less we expect from ourselves, and the more we fall back on God's grace as the decisive foundation of his life. One thing comes from knowing your heart. You know how much you need grace. You get it. The only people who get it are the ones who know they don't really get it. They're on the way to getting it. Do you understand that? He said, I have been driven back more and more to the grace of God. It is God's grace, His undeserved, unmerited favor, His love toward me in spite of my rebellious heart. That is what looking and, and recognizing my heart apart from grace does for me. It makes me depend more upon Christ, not less. The Christian life is not growing independence. Uh, in need of Christ, but it is growing more and more in our need for Him, our desperate need for Him. That's what the Christian life is, truly lived. 
And then the next thing he says, but precisely this growing relaxation as we fall back on God's grace inspires us to fresh and greater efforts, making the struggle more intense. Um, And so as we turn back to grace and realize that grace is at work in us, if you truly get grace, you truly understand what grace is, it doesn't lead you to inaction or idleness or standing by or boredom. Rather, it motivates. It melts the heart. It charms our greatest fears. It drives us. It causes us. It impels us forward. Paul mentioned that Christ had taken hold of him. In other words, he said, I was apprehended, and now I'm trying to apprehend the one who has taken hold of me. That's how you become a Christian in the first place. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, you know, there was a time when I know I wasn't a Christian, and now I am. I woke up one day, and I realized, you know, something's missing from my life. Something's not quite right. I, I, I just feel like I'm, I'm disjointed. I, I don't get it. Things aren't coming together. And you, someone told you about Jesus Christ, and you heard his message of forgiveness and peace and love and what he's accomplished for you. He lived the life you should have lived and couldn't. He died the death you deserved to die. And now he gives you his righteousness and eternal life as you trust in him. And you say, you know, I started seeking Jesus, and I became a Christian. Well, let me tell you something. Your seeking of Jesus was not the cause of Jesus saving you. It was the result of him laying hold of you. The only way anybody becomes a Christian is Christ grasping us. We are lost in deadness and darkness. We are spiritually at the bottom of the ocean without a chance of life in us at all. And until Christ pursues us, until Christ finds us, until Christ grasps us, I love to hear testimonies of Christians who tell me, you know, I I wasn't looking for this at all. But all of a sudden, one day, Jesus just laid hold of me. And so there is a priority of grace. Think about who we're talking about here. We're talking about the Apostle Paul, who before was who? Saul of Tarsus. What was Saul of Tarsus' reason for being? To destroy Christ and his followers to absolutely destroy the church. And then on his way to Damascus, after witnessing the stoning of Stephen, he's on his way to Damascus to persecute Christians, and Christ meets him on the road. And all of a sudden, Paul, for the first time in his life, sees the reality of the risen Christ and recognizes in one fell swoop his hostility and animosity and pride toward the Christ was worthy of judgment. But then Christ saved him and gave him new life. And it's as if Paul did a complete 180. He became Paul the Apostle. And so as the conflict spreads to more and more areas of our life, for all the time we discover new areas of conduct and thought which so far were not yet involved in the process of renewal, we come to discover more and more the beauty and glory of Christ. And so Paul had a priority of grace. His hope, what he has been taken hold of, and now he tries to take hold of Christ himself. Second thing I want to call you, well, I'm not quite there. What is the goal, by the way? What is it Paul's after? 
And, and the context text is sort of like a prism where you run light through it, and it's multifaceted. It's all describing the same consummate reality. Paul speaks of knowing Christ, of being found in Him, in union with Him, gaining Christ, righteousness by faith, the power of the resurrection, conformity to His death, the fellowship of his sufferings, attaining to the re resurrection of the dead, realizing fully all that he is in union with Christ and all that Christ is to him. Never separate the person of Christ, who he is, from the work of Christ, what he has done. And when we receive Jesus, we don't get half of him, we get all of him. And it is a relationship in which he becomes our ultimate reason for being. He is our treasure. And so he gives us in the following two pictures of how to know him. First, he gives us a passionate pursuit. He speaks of the one thing. He speaks of pressing on. He speaks of running straight toward the goal. He speaks of a singleness of purpose. He speaks of crossing the finish line. Paul saw the Christian life as a race as a race. And in this race, the odd thing is, everybody who runs the race and finishes wins. It's not whether you're first, it's whether you finish. It's not a participation trophy either. I hate participation trophies, by the way. You know, if you're going to give somebody a trophy, you know, come on. Trophy for showing up. But our culture is so wacky about those things. But anyway, he's talking about a race here. He's talking about a runner who never looks over his shoulder to see how much ground he has gained or to check out competitors. My youngest daughter, when we moved to Louisiana, got interested in swimming. And she only, to my knowledge, ever learned how to swim by taking swimming lessons. But when we got there, she had some friends that were involved in swimming, so she decided to try out for the team. All right, she's swimming with girls who have been competing for five to seven years. She gets in the race, and she comes in second or third, and she's over there pouting like she didn't even get in the water. And I'm going up to her, and I'm saying, Molly, understand something. These people have been doing this for five, seven, eight years. You just started two weeks ago. You're not going to win. I said, but stop. I said, I'm your father. I have the right to say this. When you're swimming in a race, don't turn around and look to see where your competition is. It's dead ahead for the finish line. By the way, I never knew that swim meets took a whole day, but we discovered that. <laughs> we discovered that. They even had my wife, Pam, being a ref, some kind of an official. And we didn't know a whole lot about it, but we figured it out as we went along. You had a lot of time to figure it out. But... <laughs> She would look over her shoulder. She would check to see how much she had to go. She was making all these moves. I said, if you want to run, swim the race more effectively, you have to keep your eye on the prize. Uh, but I used to run track. I know that's impossible for some of you to believe, but I did run track. And I ran relay races, and that's where you hand off a baton to someone in the race. And I usually ran like third, third leg of the race. Two guys would run, then they'd hand it off to me, and I'd hand it off to the finisher. Well, one thing I learned quickly in running a relay race, you don't turn around and look back to take 
the baton. Why? You're losing steps. People are going by you. So you start out running and you hold your hand back here as you're running and the guy places the relay baton in your hand and you never break stride, you never look back. That's a perfect handoff. But if you turn around, take the baton, drop it a couple of times, you're losing. It's over. And so Paul is speaking of a single-minded purpose here. He's, he's, he's telling us that he uh, is doing the one thing. He is pressing onward toward the goal, the one thing. You know what the goal was for Christ, I mean for Paul? The goal for Paul in this life was knowing Christ, knowing Christ. That was his heartbeat. If you cut him, that's what he bled. Paul is also telling us something very important. If you look at the text, he said in verse 13, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind. Paul says in order to run the race effectively, you've got to have a certain relationship to history of both your good things you've done and bad things you've done. You've got to forget it. You've got to place it out of the way. You can't live with it in your uh, um, vision. It's got to be behind you, forgetting what is behind. In other words, getting caught up in either progress that I've already made or getting caught up in failures that I've already experienced is counterproductive to knowing Christ. He has forgiven us. We can walk away from it. And so he says... Our accomplishments or things that we have done, uh, there's no uh, self-satisfaction, no relaxation of effort. He was a person driven by grace. Paul said it this way, I am what I am by the grace of God. But his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, for I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. As Paul looked back on his experience, anything he saw that drove him ahead was driven by grace. Sometimes the fear of someone like me is if I teach and preach grace, people will become slack and do nothing. But that's only if they don't understand grace. They don't understand how freeing and empowering it is. And so Paul is straining forward with all his might to reach the line, the finish lines. His hands are stretched out. I can remember running races or seeing races one, in which as you get to the finish line, there's always a leaning forward and almost a dive uh, to get ahead of a, an opponent. And that's how Paul is speaking of it. He's, his body is bent forward with intense desire and effort, and he will not be denied. His pressing on is purposeful. It is not aimless. And the prize, the wreath, is for all participants. And what is the prize? The full and complete gaining of what is called Christ in eschatology. That is, for whom all things, the greatest reward is to know fully and be in perfect fellowship with the one who apprehended me. In perfect fellowship, uh, Paul on the Damascus Road now wants to grasp the prize. And he wants his readers to grasp the prize. And so in many ways, 
growing and progress in the Christian life is measured by the prize, Christ himself. Paul was not saying, I'm going to finish the race, and I'm going to win, and all the people are going to applaud me, and I will be called up to the stage, and I will be given a a wreath, a laurel wreath uh, crown on my head, and people will glorify me. No. There's no glory for Paul. All the glory goes to Christ. And so, as he continues in this text, he gives us a true assessment or a standard of spiritual maturity. Notice that he says not all are of the same attitude that he just expressed. He applies verses 12 to 14 to his readers, and he says this, Have this as your worldview. Have this as your mindset. Have this as your framework. To be perfect is to be whole and complete, and a mature person is one who has the same Christ-centered ambition as his. You know, one of the core values I have in uh, being a pastor of a church is to conduct worship services that happen in a certain way. And everybody has uh, core values, uh, things that they really believe with all of their heart. And then in every situation you're in in life, there's always a subtext. There's what you see outwardly, but there's something underneath supporting it. Now, why would people want to come to Spring Meadows Presbyterian Church, you might ask? And the answer to that would be, well, some people might say, we really have some good teaching there. They're reformed. They've got all the petals on their tulip. They really have the right eschatology, and they have the right emphasis upon this or that. And truth is wonderful. Truth is great. Truth is necessary. But it's not what we're all about. Number two, some people may say, well, I just love the music. You know, they do hymns, which I think is important. We need to be in the tradition of the church and sing these great hymns. But they sing great praise songs, too. It's sort of a blend of things. And I enjoy participating in the worship. The worship's great. You should go to Spring Meadows because the worship is great. Well, that worship is good, but that's not why we're here. And the third one might be, well, we have a preacher, you know, he's... Got a little bit of a southern accent, but we forgive him for that. And he's, uh, you know, he's, he's energetic and enthusiastic, and he speaks, and he doesn't preach too long, though sometimes he gets close. But he's pretty good, and you ought to come hear our preacher. He's pretty good. Well, we like for you to think that, but that's not why we're here. Well, the fourth thing comes around and says, why do we want to go to Spring Meadows Church? And the reason we want to go to Spring Meadows Church is because when I leave that place, I am more in love with Jesus than when I came in the door. I am more affected by who Jesus is. That's what we're about. We're about Christ and Him only. About Christ and Him only. And that does require truth, yes. And that does involve worship, yes. And that does involve preaching the Word of God. But there's a certain subtext. Who is it that is ultimate? Who is it that is our treasure? Who is it that is our life? And why is he worth pursuing, laying aside everything else and pursuing him only? Because he's beautiful. Because he's glorious. Because he's God in the flesh. That's why. And so the apostle continues here, recognizing 
that a mature person is the one who has the same ambition he does. A strong concept of grace issues in one thing, forgetting what is behind, pressing on to the goal, finding your prize in Christ. And, you know, to get that and understand that means God's grace is at work in you. What is progress in the Christian life? Is it sinning less or being less aware of your sin? Is it uh, memorizing more scripture? Is it uh, uh, sharing the gospel with people? All of those things are wonderful. But it isn't so much moral progress, Paul says here, as it is cl getting close with a person. Getting close and closer and knowing a person. That is the greatest reward of living the Christian life. And so if you know who Jesus is, you understand what I'm talking about. You understand that he is altogether lovely. He is the one who is precious to us. So precious. How do you know you're a Christian? How do you know? Because you've been apprehended by Christ and you spend the rest of your life trying to apprehend him or grasp him. That's what you're about. You're all about Jesus and knowing him. And guess what eternity is going to be? You think going to heaven, you're going to, you know, what are you going to do in heaven? Float around on a cloud with an angel taking a palm frond and, you know, fanning you and eating great clusters of grapes? No. Heaven's all about worshiping Jesus. And if you don't like doing it here, I don't know why you'd want to go to heaven. Because that's what it's going to be, being with him and filled with him and finding joy in him. And we will still be trying to grasp all of the loveliness and beautiness of his person. So for the new year, your ambition should be pursuing Christ so that you may know him. And you can know him because he's a person. He's not a force. He's not a power. He's not unreachable. He's not ineffable. He's not beyond us. Um, but rather, he is welcoming. He is the most welcoming person ever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of this text. And we do pray that we would grow daily in our understanding of what it means to know Jesus. And I pray for each person here that there would be such a passion centered upon the person of Jesus involving the personal pursuit of personal knowledge of Christ and fellowshipping with him would be our passion. Now, Father, as we continue to worship you, may we give as people who are pursuing the excellence of Christ. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.